I opened my eyes. Obviously it's completely dark in there and I couldn't see anything, but I looked down at the carpet and it seemed like it was kind of illuminated. Like I could see a little bit of the carpet, which was weird because I know that I couldn't. I stood up and then all of a sudden I saw like a black arm go like this out of the carpet. Then another one put its hand up and then it stood up. It like put its arms out toward me. And then it started going like this, like, like it was scared of me. And then it started mm. like, then it started like backing away. Like it was like, don't hurt me. I realized in that moment that this figure was like a representation of me and like my shadow and all of the, the dark things that had happened to me or the, or the dark things that I did that I had regret for. And it was all embodied in this this figure that was standing in front of me. And so I like reached out my arms to hug this thing. And then it just disappeared. And I just started like, I just fell to the floor and just cried for probably like two hours. Welcome back to another episode of Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today, friend, musician, and overall explorer of life, Casey Ryan is joining me on the show. Casey recently did a darkness retreat, which absolutely set my soul on fire, and I couldn't wait to talk to him about it. We talk all about the difference between intention and expectation. That's really important for anyone diving into personal development work. There is a huge difference between those two things, my friends. We also talk about changing self-perception. Who do I think I am? Who do I think I am when I'm stuck with my thoughts? And who do I think I am when I'm stuck with my thoughts in the dark for a week? I can't wait for you to hear today's show and all of the breakthroughs that Casey had while he was in the darkness. Also super exciting. I am hosting, launching, facilitating my very first retreat. We are doing the wild woman retreat, my friend, Amanda and I, and I could not be more excited to be bringing this opportunity to you. We are going to be meeting at Under the Canvas in beautiful Tennessee for a weekend of expansiveness, of finding our wild woman, connecting to self, and doing this through creativity, through group breakout sessions, through a bunch of psychoeducation, so that you can return back to your life as the beautiful wild woman that you are. I will put all the ways to get involved in the show notes. So if you want more information, if you want on the wait list, if you want to fill one of the eight spots. Let me know. And until next week, enjoy the show. All right, guys, I'm so excited because I'm sitting down with Casey Ryan, musician, explorer, curiosity seeker, I'm making up this intro, so but I'm seeing him <laughs> nod, so I think that that, that works. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited. Um, I've followed Casey's journey on Instagram for a long time, which is funny now because you're not on the social media platforms as much, um, but I'm just really excited. We've talked about having this show for a long time, and to be able to actually sit down on the mics is really exciting, so welcome to Get Psyched. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So what kind of sparked this whole conversation around surrender was a recent not only silence, but darkness retreat that you were on. Can you kind of let listeners know what that was about and, and what that is if people have no idea what the hell we're talking about? Sure. So, um, I actually heard about this in 2020, right around the time that everything got locked down. Um, wow. How fitting. 
yeah, it was, it was perfect. Um, I had like 200 tour dates just kind of get uprooted out underneath me. And I was kind of just struggling to figure out like what the next step would be if music wasn't an option. So I was listening to a podcast with Aubrey Marcus, a person that I think you and I both mutually admire. And uh, he had mentioned, um, I think at that point he hadn't done it yet, or he might've already done it, but he was talking about it. So I researched it pretty extensively. And what it is essentially is, the number of days is arbitrary, but you basically go into a completely light proof room um, for an extended period of time. Most of the time, your first, the first time it's typically, you know, three to five days. Some people do their first one at 10 days. Other, it just depends on like the edge and honoring your edge, but you go into this completely light proof room and in that room is the basic needs, a bed, you know, a shower, and then they bring you food once a day, or you can decide to fast. I didn't fast. I was planning on it, but then that ended up changing. And basically after a few days in the dark, um, due to the increase in melatonin in your brain, you get an endogenous DMT dump that your pineal gland produces in the absence of light. So it produces auditory and visual hallucinations that's, some people can think of as like entities from other dimensions. That's what like some other people have thought what ayahuasca DMT experiences are. And through that experience, you basically get in touch with the deepest part of yourself. And through the meditative and yogi aspect of it, you can heal trauma. Hmm. At least like that's the basic premise, but these, uh, these retreats and darkness has actually been used for centuries from like Mayan culture to native American culture, um, as rites of passage and ways for people to overcome their fears and et cetera. So, so yeah, I, uh, spent two years really, really wanting to do it. And then I finally found a retreat center in Ashland, Oregon, and that's where I did mine. There's not really that many in the, I think there's like a total of 20 or 30 in the entire world. And there's only a couple in the United States. So. Wow. And do you know, I know that you talked about honoring your edge, right? That that number of days in the darkness is arbitrary. Um, Do you know the success rate or how many people stay the amount of time that they had intended to, or is it pretty frequent that people, right? We, we get stuck in our own brains enough when there's outside stimuli. So what happens when all of that's gone? Do you know that number or is that? I don't, I don't, I would imagine that. I don't know. I think the people that are seeking the darkness retreat and actually sign up to actually do it, they're probably have been, they've probably been practicing um, as you, you mentioned you hadn't watched the documentary yet, but um, the, the uh, owner of the retreat center mentioned that people are mostly practicing for five to 10 years meditation and yoga or like just seeking spiritual and personal development for that long before they even think about going into the darkness. So it kind of worked out that I had already done that. But if somebody just decided one day without any experience in yoga or silence or meditation, just to go and do it, I would probably wager they probably wouldn't make it past a day. And that's not because like they're a weak person or anything. It's just like a, it's across the board. It's an extremely challenging thing to do and it's not easy. So I don't know the number specifically, but I would imagine it's, I mean, I wanted to leave 
I wanted to leave almost immediately. Like day three, I wanted to go, but like I didn't, you know, I stayed. And how many days? I did seven. Seven. Okay. That was my goal. That was my goal. And, but day three and, you know, I, I, I meditate every day. I've done it for, you know, 10 years. I've practiced yoga, done like psychedelic journeys and everything. And, but being in that room time, just it's eternal and there's just nothing. So it's, yeah. So the number of people that probably leave early, it's again, it's arbitrary. So I think that you should just recognize where you are in that moment. And if you want to come out, come out, but you can get a profound experience in just a a few days, I would say, but I mean, that's for everybody. What was happening at day three that you were like, I'm ready to get out of here. Well, the first, like the first like couple days was honestly, I was really enjoying it. Um, I tend to take on a lot of things and that's not, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, but I and probably overly ambitious. Um, I like to do a lot of things at once. I like to, and a lot, a lot of times my intention is, is put to several different things, whether it's music or all my other physical practices or, you know, romantic partnership, wherever it is, like my attention is constantly being like shifted. Um, so I've used meditation as a, as a way to, and yoga specifically as a way to, um, and psychedelics as a channel to still myself and be in a calmer and meditative state. So the first couple of days, not having any schedule or obligation or responsibility. I mean, it's, it was like, I mean, you can, you hear in the, the documentary that I made me talking about it because I had an audio recorder in there. Um, and just as a quick, <clears throat> as a quick segue, really quick, <clears throat> I wanted to do a silent, completely silent. I think next time, if I do it, I will do it silent, but I brought an audio recorder in that was all blacked out just specifically so I could document this. It was for a purpose. Um, but anyways, the first couple of days was very, very peaceful. And I was thinking to myself and talking out loud saying, um, you know, if it, if it stays like this, then I don't want to leave I yeah. two weeks. Um, but I went to sleep and then day three, when I, I, day three, I woke up and the DMT was already like starting to hit me. And I didn't expect that till like day four or five ish, but it started mm-hmm. to hit me like day night of night to day three. So day three came and it started to hit me and it wasn't like that part was scary, but it was more so just the, the concept of time. I was fully convinced that the facilitator of the retreat forgot about me. Because I was like, there is no way that it's not 7 p.m. by now. Like I've been, I meditated for six hours, did yoga. And I was trying to, and you have to move so slowly in there because there's obviously no light. Um, But I was just convinced that he'd forgotten about me. And then like that anxiety was like triggering other things. Like what if he's like a serial killer and he's just like... (laughs) keeping me in here to like harvest my organs or something. I I don't know, but there was, there was just a lot of things coming up and it was just, I I could start to feel this like pressure on my chest. Like I was claustrophobic and that it was getting just to a point where, but then I was able to calm myself down from that. But basically just having, when you're a person who does so many things and have all, has all this stimulus around you and, and you like to be outside and you like to be 
I don't necessarily like to experience people all the time, but um, just having the option to like communicate with a person or talk to a person, I didn't think that I would miss that as much as I did. And uh, it, it became pretty readily apparent pretty early on that I was like, okay, I definitely miss communicating with people. And yeah. Yeah. So. How interesting of a dynamic too, for you to be a musician. I mean, I could, I'm totally oh, yeah. guessing here. Right. But <laughs> your, your lyrics are kind of a, a segue to the soul, right. Or the message that you want to get out and you get that out auditorily. Mm-hmm. Um, so how was that not being able to connect on that level? Um, yeah. So obviously I went in with the intention of, um, you see at the beginning of the documentary, before I shut the camera off, I, I, I read out a list of intentions, um, that I'd planned on, like, they weren't goals because goals kind of imply like if you don't get the goal, then you fail. So I mm-hmm. was more setting intentions. Can um, you just for listeners, because I think this is really important. People tend to confuse intention and expectation, I yes. think. So how do you differentiate that? Yeah, so it's only been probably as the last few years that I've really under been able to really understand the distinction between those two. Um, I have always expected. And I think when you expect, I think it's important to expect a level, a certain level from yourself, as far as like the respect you show for yourself, the boundary you set for yourself, you should expect to uphold that standard to yourself, because I think that's what confidence is. That's what self-esteem is. That's what builds resilience and perseverance is um, being able to expect something of yourself and honor that. And you're not always going to do that for sure, but like, it's important to like strive toward that. But the problem with expectation is that when you have another, when you have an expectation of an outcome that you can't control or an expectation of a person, especially in romantic partnerships, an expectation of like, what they should say, how they should be, how they should treat you. And like, again, that relates back to boundaries a little bit, but you cannot control what another person will say or do or what the universe has in store for you. You cannot control any of that. So all you can, con- all you can control is what you say and what you do. So I think that my entire life, I've expected other people and the world to, you know, as, as you know, trauma kind of creates this inadvertent and involuntary, like self-absorption. And it's not because like you want to be that way, but you you're constantly being tempted to that victim mindset of this is happening to me. I expected, I, I, I feel entitled to something going good because things have always not gone good. So it's, um, you're also hypervigilant, right? Exactly. That hypervigilant. So primed to, for so many people, right? The body is not a safe place to be. The mind is not a safe place to be. The thoughts are dreary to say the least. Um, and for a lot of people that hypervigilance has kept them safe, right? If I can expect what's going to happen, then I'm going to be ready when it does happen. Yes. 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 Uh, the hypervigilance is, um, it's it's on the laundry list of things that people with a trauma past have to have to endure. Um, and again, not to say that people that we're all victims in that sense. I mean, everybody's a victim in some to some degree, but 
whether you're a victim or not, it is our responsibility as adults to rectify that for ourselves. So you can understand that these things happen to you and that we're out of your control, but it's our responsibility to rectify them and try to go forward in a way that's beneficial to yourself and other people. Um, but I think expectation, you know, there's that cliche saying expectation breeds disappointment. And I, I think that that's true. Um, so for me, I've tried as of the last couple of years to just have intentions and with intention doesn't come, I think as much shame and guilt when you don't meet that. Um, for me, at least like I, when I set an intention, like, okay, if I journal in the morning, you know, my intention for today is to be authentic. My intention for today is to, you know, work out or meditate for a certain period of time or read or whatever it is. And like, if, if something happens to where I can't meet that, then I'll just try to intend to do that the next day. Or if I just don't do it at all, like, I, I just think it's a lot there's a lot, there's a reframing technique that's involved in the psyche that I think is extremely beneficial to whether you, if you set the bar too high for yourself or too low for yourself, then you're going to be met with that disappointment. But if your intention is to simply go toward the thing and understand that if you fail or if you don't reach that, it's okay, then you're able to foster the um, love for yourself and the ability to understand that you're fallible and you're not this robot that can just keep pushing and keep pushing without pushing past your over your, your barrier. And that was like the biggest thing going into the darkness was, uh, was just that intention of like, I want to honor myself wherever I am and not go past that. So if I'm tired, I'm going to rest. And if I want to move around, I'll move around. If I want to sit in silence, if I want to meditate, then I'll do that. If I don't, then I won't. Um, so just completely trying to honor like what your body is feeling. I think that that's what intentions really are is like honoring where you are in the moment and expectation can breed like the dissatisfaction with yourself and the shame and guilt that comes from not reaching what you wanted. It's that outcome, outcome oriented mentality. So yeah. It's also the void of compassion, right? If we're not, if we don't invite in compassion for ourselves, whether that's because we think that that's weak or we don't think we deserve it or you name it without sure. the compassion, the healing's not possible. Yes. And, and I've rarely in my life shown compassion for myself. Um, Why not? Um, I never thought that it was okay. Um, I never thought that I, I always, it goes back to what I was just talking about. I think that I've just always, um, I've always set like such a high bar for myself because like <clears throat> when I was younger, I just, I wanted so badly to, I always just wanted to be somebody different. I always wanted to do, I just always wanted to be different. I always felt like that. I was never, I could never be comfortable with like me. So especially when I was younger, like I would lie a lot and I would, um, and I would just surround myself with people who I knew weren't good for me. And I would say yes, way too much. And, mm. um, because I, I just, I didn't know, I, I, we only know what we know, you know, and we, we can only meet ourselves where we are, when we are. And I just didn't know that like showing compassion for myself would be something that would ultimately shift my, how I viewed myself. Um, 
because no matter what I achieved and no matter what I did, um, it never felt like I could be proud of myself. So literally like probably six months ago, I started journaling about this. I, I, I tried this habit of, okay, I'm going to write 10 things today that I'm proud of myself for. Mm. And the first time I did that, I cried like a fucking baby. Like I was like, holy shit, I've never actually felt this. I've never actually done this. So, um, when you, when you're not, when you don't know how to do it, I think, um, that's where, that's where it came from for me. I just didn't know that that was something that was acceptable. I always felt like nothing was, uh, I, I could never be comfortable feeling good about myself. So I didn't, um, mm. during that time when you didn't know that compassion or, or pride, even there is a healthy sense of pride, right? Sure. Um, before you were invited into that, what was the easiest emotion for you to feel or your most common? Um, anger. Yeah, for sure. Um, confusion. I think that I would be angry because I was confused. Um, I just didn't understand why things never seemed to like work out. And it was, there's this quote that I really love. Um, those who have nothing, everything will be taken. Those who have everything, everything will be given. Um, and it seems like some, sometimes like the, the people that have the most trauma can like tend to perpetuate that. That's what multi-generational trauma is. Like they just, because you, our parents weren't shown how to love each other and give love. So they pass that on to us. And then in turn, we internalize that. And then we live our lives free of compassion and love for ourselves. So then we pass that on it and just continues and the cycle continues. So I just always felt so angry that, um, I would see other, I think angry and jealousy, jealous a little bit. Um, I'm just seeing my friends and family that had like these, these, uh, you know, awesome families and like money and, you know, all this stuff. Like I would find myself becoming envious of it. Mm. And then I would be at these people's houses, like having dinner with their family. And like, it would feel really uncomfortable for me. And I would just be like, this doesn't comfort never felt comfortable to me. It always felt uncomfortable to me. So, um, and that, I mean, that's how I felt most of my life, you know, until like, you know, around the age of like 25, 26, when I really started to dive into like the spiritual and, um, inner voice. And then, um, once I did that, I was able to realize like, okay, I'd been living life. Not that there's a right or wrong way to live life, but that was probably not the most optimal way to be living. My life was in like perpetual anger and, um, and confusion. And to be honest, like that stuff has always, it stayed with me still, but I just, I, the difference is I recognize what it is now. And it's a lot more easy to cope with because right. I have all these tools, you know? And it's so systemic, right? Like I think, I don't think there's a single man listening right now, um, that doesn't have that resonate. Um, you know, I think Brene Brown puts it really perfectly when she talks about, um, vulnerability and how so many of us view it as a weakness until we really surrender to it. Um, right. If something that seems like such a weakness or that you're so afraid to do was truly weak, then why are you so afraid to do it? Right. Couldn't it be the strongest thing to do? 
Oh yeah. If you actually allowed yourself. And for so many men, right. Systemically, we talk not only generationally, but systemically it's more socially acceptable for men to feel anger or have an angry outburst or like go, go to any live sports game or even a sports bar and see how many people are screaming about the fact that their team, this arbitrary team isn't doing what they want them to do. Right. That is (laughs) that right. Phenomenon weird, but that is more socially acceptable than to see a grown man on the street crying. Right. And, and what Brene Brown was saying was, you know, so many romantic partners, the women in partnership are saying, I want to see your feelings, please be vulnerable, please open up. And the minute that person opens up, there's an unconscious kind of like receding on the woman's end. Cause that's a very unnatural, right. I put that in quotes thing for us to see in, in society or in this person who's supposed to be again, air quotes, the provider or you know, the, the rock, if you will. And yeah. so I think that we're, you know, men in general are kind of combating two things. It's what, what was modeled for them, right. What they saw generally generationally, and then also all the messages that they're getting societally. So more often we see any big emotion for men typically manifests and comes out as anger. Sure. And it's not yeah. until you give yourself that permission, right. To dig underneath, like, Ooh, I'm yeah. actually feeling jealousy. Oh, I'm actually feeling inadequacy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that I didn't even on the vote. I, I agree with everything that you said. And I think that that systemic um, emotional expectation like bleeds into for women as well. Um, you know, and I think that that's what I love about the word partner is that it implies equity um, and how, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be just like the man taking care of the woman or the woman being the only one to show emotion. It should be like the man having the courage and the bravery to show his feelings and like be truthful and have a difficult conversation. Something that like, again, so many men that would listen to this or just in general, um, I never understood the importance and value in that until I actually did it. And that, that's not to say that it makes it any easier because like, it is a lot easier to live in willful, willful ignorance and just naivety because it's so many people like live in that mindset. And like, you can just tell that obviously they're suffering in another way, I'm sure. But like a lot of people that live in that state, it's just so much easier to not face those things, but right. It's uncomfortable, but doing something new feels more uncomfortable. Exactly. But, but that, that goes back to, you know, meaning versus expediency. Like what is expedient isn't meaningful and what is meaningful is not expedient. And I think to actually form of and foster a connection with yourself and another person or just the world in general, like you have to be willing to be vulnerable and surrender to that. And if you're not, you can probably live life and go about your business, but you're never going to get in touch with like the deepest part of what intimacy could be or closeness could be. And, um, and by the way, I'm not saying I'm fucking there because I'm not. <laughs> We're all a work of definitely, you know, I've gotten substantially better over the last few years, but like I'm it's still I still anytime like a difficult conversation needs to be had or something that I'm feeling like that I know that I need to say, but I you're scared of how it might come out or like what how the other person might react. Anytime that happens, like my first instinct is still to like turn around, just shut up, zip it up. Um but I, my, I, my intention 
not, not my expectation, but my intention is to get to the point where I can, it just happens freely. And that's a big part of what the darkness was for too, was hopefully being able to do that. But yeah. What were some of those <clears throat> day, day, evening of night two, right? Those hallucinations start to kick in sure. and then you're there for five more days. Yeah. That, that was like the biggest thing is the realization of that because mm. while the first two days did seem peaceful and like, it, it was like incredible just to be able to just lay there and listen and just be, um, having said that the, the time, like I said, it just moves. Like it's like, for example, you and I are talking, it's 11 AM where I am. It's 12 PM where you are like this day is already half over, like in the dark, <laughs> it, this would have felt like 10 years already. It just, it's so crazy how in the absence of stimulus, how slow the time moves. So that was the most difficult part, but then getting to night two, like I, I was meditating and I started to get these little like pulses of light and that's kind of happened to me before just outside of the dark. So I, I wasn't really expecting, you know, much from that. I was like, Oh, I'm just, you know, probably in a deep meditation right now. But then like, it was, uh, um, some blues and greens started to come in. And then like, all of a sudden I got this panoramic vision of mountains and they were just right in front of my face. Like literally like I was sitting in an IMAX theater, just like, right. And I was just like, Oh, wow. And I was just standing at the base of them looking up these peaks and then it would start to flash in and out. And so it was really, it was really peaceful. It was really like beautiful, like nothing like terrifying, but then the terrifying thing that happened was like night four, night five. Um, but that's, I had one pretty terrifying vision, but yeah, so that's what started for night two. But, Do you care to share the terrifying vision? Yeah, it's it's in the documentary too. But I can, uh, yeah, I can share it too. Um, uh, it was sometime early in the morning. I assumed because I had had dinner and then I took a bath, went to sleep, and then I woke up at some point. I didn't. Again, you have no idea of, of what time it was. Oh, and just another quick thing. At this retreat center, at this specific one that I went to, I didn't know that the room was also soundproof. So at other retreat centers there, you can like hear the birds outside or hear like a chicken or something. So you kind of get <laughs> what time it was at this retreat center. There's no sound. So I didn't know that going in either. So when I got in there, I was like, oh, this is soundproof too. So whole, here so, we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I didn't, I couldn't hear anything. So you don't really know. Cause you know, when you wake up in the morning and you can hear birds outside and you, you kind of know that it's morning, but but I assumed it was sometime early in the morning because I obviously went to sleep, but you're also not sleeping that much either because like the first couple of days you sleep a lot because of the excess of melatonin, but like the, like days two through seven, you're sleeping like one or two hours a night. So it's pretty crazy, but I woke up and like, I, <clears throat> I opened my eyes and uh, obviously it's completely dark in there and I couldn't see anything, but I looked down at the, the carpet and it seemed like it was kind of illuminated. I could see like, just, I could feel like, I feel like I could see a little bit of the carpet, which was weird because I know that I couldn't, but, um, I saw what looked like if you imagine there's like a rug on the floor and there was like a cat or like a mouse underneath the rug. And it was mm -hmm. like, it was like bubbling up like that. And I was like, there's a fucking animal in here. 
I was like, I, I was convinced like somehow like a, an animal got here. Like, and so I was like, oh shit, I got to get this animal out of here. So like I, I stood up and then all of a sudden I saw like a black arm go like this out of the carpet. And I literally, it was just like, I'm looking at you right now. It was like a black arm just got him out of the carpet. And then another one put his hand up and then it stood up and it was like right here in front of my face. And it was like this black figure. And I know that people like listening are going to be like, this is crazy, but that's what the power of what endogenous DMT or just DMT can provide. It's like, that's, it it sounds crazy, but I swear to God, that's what I was saying. Stood up and it like put its arms out toward me. And then it started going like this, like, like it was scared of me. And then it started Mm. like, then it started like backing away. Like it was like, don't hurt me. Like kind of, kind of like that. So I realized in that moment that like this figure that just crawled out of the carpet was like a representation of like me and like my shadow and like all of the, the dark things that had happened to me or the the dark things that I did that I had regret for. And it was all embodied in this, this figure that was standing in front of me, whether it was a hallucination or a vision or not, it was still real to me in that moment in my head. And so I like reached out my arms to like hug this thing and then it just disappeared. And I just started, like, I just fell to the floor and just cried for probably like two hours. Um, it was extremely terrifying, but what came out of it was this acceptance and this piece of like that part of me that like, you know, there's that quote of, you know, we all have a nature we know nothing about. And I think that that was the embodiment of that was like this, uh, all of, all of like my, my deep, dark secrets or my fantasies or anything that I thought that I should just push away or any like negative thought that I should just push away my entire life. Like in that moment, I, I realized as I was touching this figure and seeing it, that it was like, that's just a part of being a human and the human experience is like understanding that we have a light and a shadow and it's important to live in the light, but it's also important to excavate and accept the parts of your shadow and integrate them in a way that that you're not self-abandoning and you can just, you can be both at once. Um, now, obviously I don't believe that a person should try to live in their shadow because the end result of that is probably not going to be as optimal as it could be is if you just integrated and accepted the part that it exists in you and understand that it's a part of you and combine it with the light. Um, so that's what I got from that experience ultimately, but, uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Where do you see, cause I love parts work, right? Anyone that listens to this show knows that I'm a big fan of IFS internal family systems. And the idea that we have, uh, all of these little parts that live inside us. If you've ever seen Pixar's inside out and she has like the angry part and the anxious part and all these little Pixar parts, yeah. um, that's IFS, right? And the man who created this modality of therapy or way of thought um, was a family therapist for a long time. And for most people coming to family therapy, there's the quote identified patient or what we might think of as like the black sheep of the family. And everyone thinks if we can fix that person, this system will work better. Sure. And as family therapists, we know if we can understand and fix the relation, right. The way in which you are relating to that person, that's actually what's going to fix the system. Yes. So with IFS, we take that internally. 
right? Can I find my shadow? Can I find these different parts of myself and fix the way I relate to them instead of changing them or telling them to go away? Yes. That's beautiful. It's, it's crazy, right? All of a sudden, right? We invite in that compassion, right? Why is that part shadowy? Can I get curious about it? Why do you have that messaging for me? How are you keeping me safe in this way by showing up as addiction or showing up as avoidance, right? You name it. How are you actually serving me, right? Where did that come to be? And do I have a lot more sympathy for that part of myself that had this really scary experience as opposed to saying, oh, you're like this gross, dark, nasty thing that I actually want to repress and not, not think of at all. So that's because we're told that's what we should do, especially people that are brought up and indoctrinated by religion. And I'm not saying that that's like a bad thing. It's a good way of life for a lot of people, but we're we're told that like, we shouldn't have these thoughts. We shouldn't have this part of ourselves. Like you need to change. And it's like, but anyways, continue. I didn't. Right. So if I do have those thoughts, what does that mean about me? Yeah. Right? I remember I mean, sitting in my catechism classes and we had to watch this video one time. This is tangential. I'm sorry. We had to watch this video one time about a kid sitting in mass and thinking about like, all of a sudden you saw their little thought bubble and there was like these dancing lollipops and um, <laughs> like popsicles. And this kid, right. The messaging was like, this person's not, this kid is not present in mass. They're thinking about food and like, that's a sin. I was like, God damn, I'm hungry like every day in church. So I'm for sure going to hell if I'm thinking about what snacks I want to eat after this. Right. And so I was taught that it was really wrong to think about how hungry I was. Right. Or these very, very natural urges. And so carry that over to, you know, you name the vice, right. When we're told that we're not allowed to feel these things, there isn't a space to integrate. There isn't a space to accept or get curious about why I even feel that way. And also just, and I, and I think like a really, there's a couple of things. The first thing that I really wanted to touch on that you said was like changing the, it's not changing yourself. It's changing the relationship that you feel like the relationship to the perception. I think that's what ketamine was able to do for me. It doesn't take like something like ketamine or just IFS in general or whatever it is, the modality you're going through. It's not necessarily about like, changing what happened or what has happened or what might happen. It's changing your relationship to the perception of what has happened. And so it's like, you, you're never going to take away trauma. You're never going to take away the shadow. You're never going to do that, but you can take away that your negative mindset toward how you feel about it. There's that one, um, it kind of relates to that one quote by Cooley. He says, a. Uh, I'm not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Mm. And uh, we live in this perception of a perception of ourselves. And when, when we do that, you can do it for a little while. And, but if you do it for your entire life, that's what like, I think ultimately what like a midlife crisis oftentimes is, is realizing that you've lived and cared about the wrong things and you've lived and cared about you. You've lived through people's perception of you and shamed yourself for who you are. Mm. But yeah. And I think that that's, that's part of what we were talking about earlier is that part of that surrender to compassion for yourself is also surrender to the fact that you are this, you do have a dark fallible side to you and you can integrate it in a way that is healthy for you rather than shaming yourself for having it to begin with. 
Yeah. So how are you finding yourself hugging that shadowy part now that you're out of the darkness? Just like, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, goosebumps. Yeah, no. um, Yeah, I, I think that, I think the part of surrender, it's like, I think at the core of it, surrender and compassion, it it all ties into radical acceptance. Um, And I, I think that I have just, I still find myself stressing and getting triggered over things for sure. But I think that what the darkness is able to do for me and not just the darkness, but part of integrating it and all the things that I've tried to learn over the last however many years, um, it's just to just be where I am and have that be okay. Um, And not be so focused on achieving because like, probably like you, you've achieved a lot of things in your life, in your young life, and you, and you want to continue to achieve things, but like you realize that once you achieve something or get to a certain place, then you find yourself just wondering, okay, well, what's, what's the next? next? <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I got here and like, this didn't bring me anymore. Like it brought me a momentary feeling of this dopaminic energy and like this satisfaction. And it does create a sense of like pride to a degree, but it doesn't change anything fundamentally. Like, you know, if you, get money or things or the partner that you want or whatever it is, like it gives you a certain degree of satisfaction for a while, but ultimately it always tends to dissipate. Um, so I think that it's important to try to go toward those things for sure, but also just accept the fact that like, sometimes you are where you are and that's okay. And if you're not exactly where you want to be or who you could be yet, like, that's fine. I think, you know, it's, it's cliche as shit, but like, enjoying the process of becoming enjoying the journey and not the destination you know like i used to hear that all the time i'd be like no fuck that like it's about the destination (laughs) when i get to the summit of this mountain like that's the destination but like it's just a view like the destination is like a summit or like a peak or like it's the peak is just like you get to see the the overview of everything but like it's what is it's what is lost and gained like along the way. I think that really creates like your character and your, your sense of purpose and place in the world. That was a really long winded answer, but that's pretty much where I am. That's what podcasts are for. Yeah. Yeah, I think so often we get stuck in the, you know, if I get to this point, whether that's financial success, relationship success, if I have this house, if I have this thing, you know, whatever it is, And then we get there and for so many people, it's okay, what's next? And that's pretty normal, right? If we're thinking from like an evolutionary standpoint, if we just stayed stagnant, there wouldn't be growth, right? There's, there's a drive in us to keep pressing on Mm -hmm. what is less innate is to get to the view, right? To get to the peak of the mountain and reflect on what got us there, right? Can I actually have a good inventory of what it took to get me here? And can I relish in that gratitude for a while instead of needing to do the next best thing? Yeah, that's beautiful. I think you put that perfectly, especially the part about relishing in the gratitude. Um, For a large chunk of my life, I was not grateful. Um, No matter what I did or like (laughs) who I was with, like, you you know, you know, my younger years having, having just like, like meaningless, like sexual relations and like, and then, um, and that was never like the person that I wanted to be, but like you do sometimes if you're lost, you do things that you don't want to do or shouldn't do or, or, or not. And I, and I would, um, 
and I would also like take for granted, like the, the good things in my life, like the really, the, the things that not necessarily, I don't really like the label good and bad, but like, I would take for granted the things that were really beneficial to me and serving me. And I wouldn't relish in that gratitude. So once I started the gratitude practice a few years ago, like all of that changed and it, it was silly for a long time. Um, to me, because I just feel like it wasn't working. But like once I was like actually somatically able to feel what gratitude feels like, especially after everything was kind of taken away from me during COVID and so many other people, like so many people had it way worse than I did. Um, it, it really does. Like when, when you lose everything or you gain everything, if, if you can't find the gratitude in both, then there's something missing there. And that's what like a connection to your world is and yourself is, I think, is that like that gratitude for, for all of it and like the lessons and like what you said, like what got me here. Yeah. So, so in that moment that you emerged from the darkness, from the silence, what was that like? Um, it was the happiest moment of my life. Like not even, and it's not to downplay the people or experiences that I'd shared other things with, um, that brought me immense joy, but it was the, I, I can't, <laughs> it's hard to describe in, in words because it's like, I just, when I was in the darkness, especially like day five, six and seven, like it, it was, it wasn't necessarily horrible. It was just, it just felt like, it felt like my entire life was the darkness. Like it felt like, I had this moment of, I had an epiphany in my mind around like day five or six. I was like, oh, my entire life was just, it didn't happen. I've, I've actually just been in this dark room the entire time. That was just a projection. I, I've just been in this dark room. So like, it felt like it was my existence. It was my eternity. Like that's how crazy and profound of an experience it was. So when I opened the door to come out and I smelled like that mountain air and I was just like, oh my God. And then you take off the blinds and you don't need the blindfold when you're in there, but I just did it. Cause I wanted to have like a moment coming out. So I put on my blindfold came out and when, and when I took that off, it was like this entire, I, it was like, I was reborn. This entire world was birthed in front of me and I could see like the vivid colors of the trees and the sky. And, and then the facilitator of the retreat was standing outside and just getting to hug him and like, have a connection with like another person was just, it was, yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, yeah, if, if you watch it, when you watch it, you'll see, like, I just, I break down and I was just so happy and grateful in that moment. And then since that time, I've been able to like go back to that moment in my mind and cultivate that feeling of joy. So I've been able to carry that moment with me in moments where I find myself complaining or find myself like, not grateful. I'm like, okay, well, it could be a lot worse. You could be in a dark room with nobody and have nothing, you know, but here you are like with a supercomputer that fits in your pocket and you have plenty to eat and you have a place to stay and you have a vehicle. And, you know, so I, it just coming out in that moment was like, it was the most profound experience in my life for the fact that like, I go back to it in every single moment now that I'm feeling ungrateful or that I should complain, you know? So mm. Yeah. Profound. That's most right. Psychedelic experiences. We talked about the self-perception, how we see the self. If we were to take a bird's eye view. Um, and for so many people, what's so healing about the psychedelic journey is they have the somatic experience of what mm -hmm. it's like to feel 
themselves as that different person. Right. So same with what you're just saying, like I could sit here and talk the talk all day about gratitude, but the fact that I have felt the overwhelming sense in my body to my core, to my soul, to my knowing what this actually feels like, Mm -hmm. you now have that ability to touch back into that place, Mm -hmm. which is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. You put that perfectly. That's what a lot of people don't understand about like like cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy or whatever it is. I mean, those are beneficial tools, but I think that that's step one of the process, um, which is why something like psychedelic journeys or like even like EMDR or ketamine or, or anything that like allows you to feel that in your body. Cause that's where we hold our trauma is it's in our fascia tissue. It's in our body. And like, until we can connect with that <clears throat> and feel it and are able to release it through the body, then it's going to remain in us. And, um, again, I'm not there <laughs> No matter with, despite all the stuff that I've done, I've been able to release a lot of that. But, um, I think now, now, like my primary focus moving forward is just to try to like, to be of service to other people, you know, which is why, like, I actually wanted to talk to you because, um, you, did you do, you did like the maps training, right? Like are you uh, guys- this summer. Oh, the summer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you excited about that? I'm really excited. I think so much of it, I did a, a a little bit of a show on it, so I won't spend too much time talking about it here, but I think a lot of it is that we're in the middle of this huge psychedelic renaissance. People mm-hmm. are talking about it, which is great. It's stripping a ton, a ton of the shame. People are allowed to be curious. People are allowed to ask questions again, which is so important. Sure. Um, the more shadowy side of that is that I think sometimes it's getting marketed as like this cure-all. And, you know, all of a sudden I get this person in my office that went and did an ayahuasca experience and didn't understand intention versus expectation, right? Wasn't ready to see so many of the things that they saw. And they're like, my body hasn't stopped shaking in six days. You know, sure. it's like, well, yeah, you have a lot to integrate and you didn't have the tool, right? You didn't. The ceremony started for you at a very different time than it might start for someone who's using that as a rite of passage. Yeah. And so I think that to be a clinician in this day and age, you're doing not only yourself a disservice, but clients a disservice by not having the knowledge of how to either help someone integrate an experience or have an educated conversation where people can think critically about making this decision. Yeah. So is my goal to become a psychedelic assisted therapist? the long and short of it is, I don't know. And the biggest answer is that I just want to be able to like facilitate the conversations for people to have the most information they can going into it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I, and I totally agree. Like people can, anybody can buy a ticket to South America and go have an ayahuasca journey, but then like to be able to, um, to come back with something that's deeper than just saying, Oh, I went and did an ayahuasca journey. Um, that I think that's part of the stigma too, is like people think that if these therapies and these uh, methods of spiritual healing are are legalized, that they'll somehow be abused. It's like, okay, well, it's like two things. One, like there's always going to be a certain degree of people that like abuse drug totally. for sure. But also part of what you said is like the educational aspect of like understanding that these substances are not used to get high. They're used as a, as a tool for growth and for healing. And Again, just like talk therapy or CBT, like psychedelics are a part of the overall healing journey because you can't just be in that psychedelic state all the time. You can't be in therapy all the time. There's a certain 
uh, degree of like personal responsibility and, and integration that you have to do independent of those things to truly heal. And again, that's for a lot of people, it's a lifelong journey. And like, that's for me too. And I would imagine for you the same, it's like, we're, there's never necessarily going to be this moment where we arrive, but there's milestones that we achieve through integrating these tools in the proper way. Yeah. And what I do want to at least put out there for people listening, psychedelics may never be your thing and that's okay. Yes. Um, Not necessary. You know, the, what Casey and I are talking about, like that somatic experience, you do get that through co-regulating off your therapist. So for a lot of people, talk therapy may be the only thing your system can handle right now and regulate. Sure. Right. Like when we talk about trauma, we talk about uh, the green, yellow and red zone, right? Green being safety, yellow being there's some sort of arousal happening, right? Maybe some stimulus came in. It made me really anxious. Right. And I'm kind of in this hypervigilant state. Red is like that full dissociation, maybe PTSD flashback. Right. And ideally sitting in that therapy room with enough rapport built and enough unconditional positive regard, your system is able to experience green, right? Your body somatically is able to experience green. The minute you walk out my door, you might go back into yellow, but your body knows what it feels like to be in that safe space. Yes. So if once a week for one hour, for 50 minutes, you're experiencing green, even though you're used to living in yellow, the healing's happening. You just might not know that that's what's, what's available. So for people who are listening, who are like, wow, a, a seven day darkness retreat sounds profound. I'm also not there. Psychedelics sound profound. I'm also not there. There's nothing wrong with that one hour of therapy a week, right? Like let's, let's crawl yeah. before we walk, walk oh, no, that's, before we run. That's exactly. And like, that's like the point of like what I said at the very beginning of it, the, the practice of doing this for years. And like, in, in like, even if therapy isn't an option for you sitting with your breath, for 10 minutes a day in the morning and just being in that space with yourself, you know, yoga, fitness, you know, just moving your body. And like uh, Tony Robbins talks about this a lot. He talks about like, you change your state by you change your state and then your, you change your state, then your story. And then you have a strategy. So you start in the body. Um, so even if therapy, just like Lindsay said, um, is a, is a great option for people if you, you know, can afford it or if you have in, insurance for it, but um, independent of that, like you can start on your own through these, you know, these ancient methods of meditation and yoga and just, or just exercise, hiking, getting outside, just getting in contact with nature. I mean, there's, there's so many things that a person can do. And I think that they all, all of these tools can work together too. I mean, that's what I do. I mean, I, I try to combine all of them and not to, not to like overwhelm yourself, but just to like experience what each one of them has to offer. And they, they all have a beneficial impact. Absolutely. Yeah, the darkness is just the macro dose of all of that. Yeah. Casey, thank you so much. I will absolutely link the documentary that you keep referring to in the show notes. Awesome. Um, I want people to be able to watch the full experience if that is something that tickles their fancy. If people want to stay up to date with your journey, how do they do it? Um. Yeah, I... I'm slowly beginning to get back on social media. So if you want to find me on Instagram, it's at Casey Ryan music, uh, Casey Ryan music.com for all of my music. And then um, I'm also uh, posting a lot more content to YouTube lately. So I'm going to be making some more videos and stuff. So youtube.com slash Casey Ryan. Yeah. I'm just everywhere. So follow me there. 
Hell yeah. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you so much, Lindsay. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. 